Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we sequence your brain with weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Professor John Maddock talks about junk DNA, the big misunderstanding in molecular biology. This is the second in my series of interviews of speakers for the Frontiers of Science Forum, where I'll be hosting the audience question and answer session at the end of the evening. You can join us at the Frontiers of Science Forum at Concord Golf Club in Sydney on Friday, 22nd of March, 2024. Junk DNA. John Maddock is the Professor of RNA Biology at the University of New South Wales. He was previously Chief Executive of Genomics England and prior to that, the Garvin Institute for Medical Research. I spoke with him by Zoom and began by asking... You're going to be giving a talk at the Frontiers of Science Forum on the misunderstanding of molecular biology. What is molecular biology and what's misunderstood? Well, the paradigm that emerged out of the double helix and the studies in the 40s, 50s and 60s, mainly uh, studying bacteria, was that genes make proteins and through the intermediate of RNA. So there's a gene at the DNA level that's transcribed to produce a temporary copy called a messenger RNA that's then translated into protein. Then there's a a gene for hemoglobin to carry oxygen, there's a gene for insulin and so forth. So the understanding that grew out of those early studies using on microorganisms, because we were too difficult to study, was that genes make proteins and we are composed of the proteins. They're the basic components or Lego parts uh, of, of cells and organisms. And that's largely true for bacteria. They're relatively simple cells and most of the genes encode proteins. In the 1970s, probably the biggest shock in the history of molecular biology was discovered that most of the human genome does not encode proteins. Only about, with regulatory elements, only about 2% of the entire DNA specifies proteins. And people thought, what's going on here? Now, there's a longer intellectual history, but basically they jumped to the conclusion the rest of it must be junk. It was sort of evolutionary debris. It was informed partly by the fact that about half of the genome was composed of repetitive sequences. In other words, sequences repeated like saying automobile a thousand times, which they just assumed was junk. And uh, and, and there was a, a cogent intellectual history to this, but it was also just an assumption because it was outside the conceptual framework. Everybody assumed that all genetic information was transacted by proteins, um, and that's all she wrote. Now, the, the, the misunderstanding at that level was to assume that the mechanisms that regulate microbial physiology will be the same as those that regulate uh, human development, or that the, 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 the way that human development is regulated and controlled will be limited to those mechanisms that control bacterial physiology. So um, this was believed for a long time that um, most of our DNA was junk, just evolutionary hangover. However, 
The second shock was then to find out that most of this DNA, which is not made into proteins, is actually made into RNA. So it's it, RNAs, but the RNAs are not translated into protein. So for a long time, people said, oh, this is just uh, transcriptional noise. You know, it's background. Because most of these RNAs that are produced from the rest of the genome are very cell-specific. They're lowly expressed. They seem to evolve very quickly, so they're not highly conserved, which is the gold standard for function. Um, and so there's been a controversy for the last couple of few decades. I think it's resolving now that whether this was just noisy junk or whether there was something else was going on. Where I came into this uh, in the late 1970s was the first when they first discovered most of the genome was being transcribed. Um, and I thought to myself, well, um, there's two possibilities here. One is that it's junk. The other is that there's another form of information that we hadn't expected. And so that, that drew me on because that was interesting. And in fact, it was more plausible if you thought about it. So anyway, the, 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 um, what's transpired is that most of the genome is actually uh, specifying genes that produce these what's called non-coding RNAs. They don't code for proteins. And these RNAs are responsible for organizing our genome during development. Now, if you stand back from it, Ian, from the moment of our conception to adult, you have to have trillions of cell fate decisions. An adult human, I mean, it's various estimates, but around 30 to 40 trillion cells. Hmm. And, you know, if you start with one, divide into two, and then to four, eight, etc. Imagine that. That has to go on until every bone, every muscle, every organ has got the right shape in the right place. And so in a binary hierarchy, there's twice as many cell fate decisions as there are cells in the, the final organism. So let's just say tens of trillions of cell fate decisions. That number is 10,000 times four orders of magnitude higher than the digital information content of the human genome. So extraordinary that so our DNA is largely devoted to controlling development. The way it does it is to produce RNAs that organize the genes to express both proteins, but also other regulatory RNAs in a, what the engineers call a feed forward system that decide that where every cell informed by environmental feedback, but where every cell has an internal program that says, what do I do next? Do I divide or do I differentiate in a muscle cell or a bone cell or whatever? So the fundamental misunderstanding was to assume that all genetic information is transacted by proteins, largely true in microorganisms, not true in us. Of course, the proteins are critically important. If you have a mutation, you're in big trouble because <laughs> they're, they're the Lego parts. In fact, that's a good analogy. If you imagine you're given a set of Lego parts for Christmas and a set of plans, and the plans are to build a house. But another set of plans could be to build a castle, and there'll be a few more parts in a castle, you might have a moat and a few other things, but by and large the components are common. And so the complexity of the thing you can build from a fairly core set of component parts is really determined by the plants, more so than the parts themselves. And in fact, that's the other thing I should have mentioned. The other shock that came along was to find when the genomes were sequenced that we have 20,000 protein coding genes, which was much less than people thought. But so do the nematode worms in the soil that are only one millimetre long that you can hardly see. They only have 1,000 cells. And what's worse, 
nearly all of those proteins are orthologous, have similar functions. So the Lego part set for animal development goes back hundreds of millions of years. As complexity evolved, most of it was driven by the complexity of the differentiation development pathways, the sulfate decisions. But of course, along the way, uh, new components were invented, say for you know, neuronal transmission or whatever. So that's, that's the narrative. Mm. So part of the fundamental misunderstanding came from going from models of how bacteria DNA worked to mm. animals and humans, and it was a mistake. Yeah, and so, you know, it's, it, you could say, well, genes make proteins. That's a true statement. But that to the extent, as they did, to think that all or most genetic information is transacted by proteins was the mistake. So in, in, you look back at the history of science, and I've written an article about this on Kuhnian revolutions. You remember Thomas Kuhn and the structure of scientific revolutions. Mostly what is understood or thought to be understood is not incorrect, but it's vastly incomplete. So to go from Newtonian to Einsteinian physics or from, you know, um, uh, Ptolemaic to Copernican, you know, solar systems, uh, well, that was a mistake. But, but mostly it's that there are things that people hadn't expected and didn't, you know. And the tragedy of science here is that the surprising results are usually swept under the carpet because people are so wedded to their current understanding, not just in terms of their understanding, but in terms of the sorts of investigations they do. They, they're living within that, that framework, that paradigm. And they get quite defensive when you suggest that the framework might be wrong or incomplete. Uh, and that's happened over and over again in science. So I, I have to say science uh, I find incredibly conservative. Now that's good in some ways. But um, somebody once said, um, the best science is done at the point of greatest surprise. But, and that's true. You know, in fact, I tell my students, you know, look for the things you didn't expect. Now, if you get a result that you didn't expect, you could have just made a mistake, you know. But you go back and repeat it. And if it repeats and you're careful, then you say, ah, something's going on here that we didn't expect. And that's the, the window to discovery. As um, Leonard Cohen's once said, the cracks are where the light shines in. Absolutely. I mean, culturally, and this is a problem in my field, I think, its birth was more in, it was a mixture of biochemistry and genetics. We go back to, you know, the first genes at Lacopper and things. But it's intrinsically reductionist. And most people are interested in what this protein does, what that pathway does, often in the context of disease, understandably. But... They don't think about how the system works or is put together. And in my, I was going to say criticism, not criticism, observation is that people still rooted in biochemistry structure, which is important, but they don't think about information and how the information is organized and transacted. And that's what you have to do when you come up to understanding how organisms are built, you know, and so I think that was the biggest problem. You know, I, you, could, you could give the analogies all day long and it would appeal to some people, but most people are sceptical. They're in their own trench. By the way, the interesting sidebar here is, is firstly that the vociferous resistance to this, and because I watched over years, occasionally you've got to respond to it, you know, when it's given coverage in nature or something, mm. is commonly, uh, and the ones who are most vociferous in their opposition to 
and defense of junk DNA are people who are quite aggressive, anti-intelligent design. Ah. Now, if you think about that, they use the junk DNA argument to argue against intelligent design because an intelligent designer wouldn't have put all that junk in. Right. So the idea that it's not junk destroys that argument, and they don't like it. Oh, so no. <laughs> I don't like ideologues on either side of this fence. No. I'm not pushing intelligent design because no, I no, can no. easily in my mind, I've written about this, rationalise how evolution could have done this. Yes. But actually it does provoke certain things. So the first is that I don't think evolution could work the way people think it does because mm. random searches are not efficient enough to navigate the space. And I tried to do this in computers years ago and the computer blew up. <laughs> so I'm convinced and there's evidence that evolution has accidentally discovered ways to improve its search efficiency doesn't know it's not prescient doesn't know where it wants to go or what, what the possibilities are but it can search the space more efficiently than just random mutations so i think and and this also goes to lamarckism because lamarck got thrown out by the theoretical biologists in the 1930s because they didn't want to pollute darwin's ideas although darwin was quite happy because he didn't know what the mechanism of variation was but there's now a real a lot of evidence, and maybe I can talk about this in the evening, mm. of intergenerational um, epigenetic inheritance. In other words, there is soft-wired inheritance that's dependent on previous experience, whether it's physiological or neuronal, we have evidence of both, mm. um, that actually conditions us as well. And that explains a lot of other mysteries, uh, including missing genetic variation in the complex disorders and so forth. So, you know, you know I think... We used to say the second half of the 20th century was the time of biology and computing. That was wrong. If as far as biology is concerned, it was just a warm-up. This is the century of biology and medicine because we're just now starting to have the tools to get under the hood properly, particularly into the brain, where a lot of this transgenerational inheritance is coming from too. So, and that has important, not only scientific, but also social consequences. In other words, if I don't know if this is true or not, but let's just take a toy example. If you're abused as a child, then that may leave a scar on your children mm. that you didn't expect, mm. even if you've recovered and live a relatively normal existence. So there's there's all sorts of wonderful things in our genome. It's I'm convinced that it's the most sophisticated information suite that you could possibly imagine, and that we can understanding the way it controls. Trillion, tens of trillions of self-fate decisions with perfect accuracy because identical twins or phenocopies mm. will open our eyes to all sorts of possibilities in terms of we, how we program other systems and also official life. But let's stay on the track. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Do you have an opinion on, way back, I think it was, there was a Professor Malcolm Simons who patented or tried to patent junk DNA? Yeah. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, look, um, in fact, Malcolm used to come to see me because he was scared that my work would interrupt his patent. It didn't. So what Malcolm recognised was that for protein coding mutations at that time, the only technologies available to detect them were restriction enzyme cleavage sites. The, 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 the sequence change would either 
create or destroy a restriction at, you know, for these sequence-specific enzymes. But finding those was almost impossible because the mutation in, say, the cystic fibrosis gene, you know, didn't, didn't create or lose a site for right. any of the enzymes. So what he realized was that nearby, in the non-coding, the regulatory sequences, both the introns inside the genes and, and the intergenic sequences were full of variations. And they were tightly linked so that if the version of the gene that was defective in cystic fibrosis couldn't be polled, but a tightly linked variant nearby in the non-coding, the junk DNA, could be identified by a restriction site, present or absent, then he had a surrogate marker that was tightly linked to the normal or damaged gene. And you could use that as a diagnostic. Very clever. Now, what happened in the patents of this was that this idea of genetic linkage was well established in genetics, going back a century to Drosophila, Morgan, all the early stuff on gene mapping. But the biochemists who were the gene cloners or the people in the patent office hadn't been trained in genetics. So they thought this was terribly innovative because you had a closely linked variant that could be analysed by the technology of the time. So at one point it was clever, but it wasn't that inventive in the sense that the geneticists knew about this. But give Malcolm credit for putting the two together. Good on him. And, and uh, they made some um, mileage out of it for a while. Yeah. Do you think some of the the difficulty of accepting the idea or even the gradual acceptance of the idea came about through things like metaphors with software instructions and things Gradually, people got the idea that it's not enough just to have the Lego bricks. You've got to have instructions on how to put them together. Yeah, it's slowly. I don't think it was a big influence because, hmm. um, I mean, culturally, and this is a problem in my field, I think, its birth was more in, it was a mixture of biochemistry and genetics. We go back to, you know, the first genes that lack hopper and things. But it's intrinsically reductionist. And most people are interested in what this protein does, what that pathway does, often in the context of disease, understandably. But they don't think about how the system works or is put together. And in my, I was going to say criticism, not criticism, observation is that people still rooted in biochemistry, structure, which is important, but they don't think about information and how the information is organised and transacted. And that's what you have to do when you come up to understanding how organisms are built, you know. And so I think that was the biggest problem. You know, I, you, could, you could give the analogies all day long and it would appeal to some people, but most people are sceptical. They're in their own trench. I've come across years ago some of the examples of where there seem to be epigenetic changes occurring in, you know, a short period of time. Was it the mm -hmm. quagga? I think there was a, no. I've got it wrong. There was a some sort of African horse type. Oh, you're talking about the, the fish stickleback. Ah, stickleback fish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So these and, and people tend to brush this out of the carpet. Whereas I think if you're a good scientist, you should be curious. Now, you always got to think of the you know flaws in your design or interpretation. But I think the there are lots of compelling examples now in mammals. For example, if you fear condition mice, like you know, it's it's a well-established paradigm. You don't hurt them too much, but when you ring the bell or puff a perfume, 
you um, give them a cold shock. So they're standing mm. on a metal platform and all suddenly goes cold. It's not too unpleasant, but they get a bit of a fright, you know. That's only got to happen once or twice, and next time they hear the bell, they, they jump, they freeze, you know, because they're expecting something unpleasant. So there have been experiments to show that three, four generations later, you ring a bell and the, the mice freeze. Mm. And this is sperm um, inheritance, so you don't have the inter-ovary issue of transgeneration because and that's what's to be devil the dutch study i don't know if you're familiar with the dutch dutch famine sh- the, there's mm, yes multi-generational consequence the trouble is that the granddaughters of the women who experienced the famine yes were in there in utero at the time they experienced the famine because ah. they had babies girls but those the ovaries in those girls were developing with the girls in right the so, so you've got to wait for another generation. But if you do sperm in experimental paradigm in mice, then you don't have any of that complication. Mm. So that's not the only example, but there's quite a few. And the mechanism, there's hints of mechanism as well about that. So I think we've got a long way to go. And, and, and really, uh, the lesson for me, Ian, is that you've got to shed your preconceptions. Mm. Now, we all have them, and they're very hard to shed. But I think... To say when something doesn't fit, don't push it aside or try to plug a you know square peg into a round hole. You you, you say, oh, that's interesting, you know. Yes. And now when you're younger and more receptive to this, and that's why often the great science is done with people and they're young because they're they're more plastic in their understanding, but of the world. But the problem, and I point out my students, postdocs, is that you're you're still learning so often when you think something doesn't feel right when you look into it it's just you didn't understand enough and you you're satisfied that there's a a cogent answer within the current understanding Mm. but always keep in mind that the things that don't make sense is where the real opportunity is and there's surely huge implications if you've got mice who've got something they've learned has gone into the generations that's that's a giant paradigm shift. It's not just physical attributes if they know something. Yeah. We don't know the limits to this. But my bias, if that's the right word, is that specific learning, the history of the German Republic or something, it's that's <laughs> unlikely to be inherited. Whereas, and, and I could talk more about it, but at more detailed levels, the microsatellites that, 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 that actually expand and contract, which may be controlling gene expression patterns that then... Mm. But we don't know, and it's really a great new frontier. And, of course, you've got instinctive behaviour as well. So, you know, if you put a toy orca into a goldfish tank, the goldfish are terrified. Ah. Yeah. The orca is a, a an ocean mammal. Goldfish are freshwater carp. But they're imprinted. Mm. It's like, you know, putting a, spy, a snake in front of a cat or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So... And so nobody's ever pulled this apart uh, genetically. And by the way, another one of my aphorisms is genetics discovers and biochemistry explains. Ah. Biochemistry discovers almost nothing. There are a few exceptions, but the clue has nearly always come from genetics, from the strange phenomenon that people mm. dig into. The entire gene cloning revolution came from genetics you know, and identifying and so the CRISPR revolution, you know, since all that was genomics and genetics, but 
there's a lot to discover and we need better tools. So every time we get new tools, we, we, we see more, mm. whether it's imaging or and that goes back to, you know, um, Lewinhook, et cetera. But we also have to expand the way we think and not assume that what we're, our understanding is correct. By the way, when, when Thomas Kuhn wrote about the structure of scientific revolutions in, in the early 60s, he said that there are two components to this. One is the, so we have a current understanding and, and people work within that current conceptual framework or paradigm and do what he called normal science, normal science. That is that your experiments are designed and interpreted or data is interpreted, your observations are interpreted within the framework of that paradigm. And that persists until two things happen. The first is that anomalies accumulate. He called them anomalies that don't fit. But you need a few of them before people start to take notice because they, you know. so the accumulation of anomalies. But then the second requirement before the paradigm changes is that there has to be a cogent alternative explanation that respects and incorporates the data of the past, but into a new framework that fits the anomalies as well. So you need a replacement paradigm before people will accept that something's wrong. They might yes. suspect it, but the, the shift is only made when you've got a cogent explanation and a new framework. Yes, it makes sense in a way. I guess people want to have a framework ready rather than just go into, well, we just don't know from when they thought they did know. Well, that's where they park it. You know, most of my colleagues out there studying protein X or Y, you know, oh, yeah, they're sort of mildly curious, but unless they've got some way of understanding it, then it's just we don't know, you know, and who knows whether they're right, the junk people or the other people. But when there's a framework that is cogent and makes sense and the evidence supports, mm. oh, right, and now I get it. In fact, when I actually say to people here at the university that most genes are coming from genetic loci called enhancers. They've been known for a century and they were thought to be something else. And they're controlling self-fate decisions during development and the mechanism is vaguely understood. People say, oh, right, now I understand. Okay, that, that, that makes sense. I get it, you know, and everything's fine. Here you go. So people who want to innovate need to pay attention to the things that are funny and unusual and interesting that are often disregarded. Yeah. In fact, I just did a podcast in uh, it's a really nice one called Night Science that you might have heard of. Mm -hmm. uh, run out of New York and uh, Dusseldorf or somewhere in Germany. And um, it's based on what creativity, you know. And so that's the clue is to look for the anomalies and don't ignore them, uh, prosecute them. Um, as I said, they may have a, an explanation, but until you find it, you... The second thing is that, when I learned this, as I said in the podcast, my mother, you know, she was one of five sisters of Irish descent, and we had no money, they had no money, and uh, so their entertainment was to debate things, argue. One said black, the other one said white, you know. And, but it was always done with great wit, good humour, you know. Um, and I learned from these women not only... Because, as I also tell my students, you don't learn anything by agreeing. You only learn by disagreeing. But you've got to do it nicely. Yes. You know, and not be offended because somebody's got a different view, whether it's about politics or anything else. I mean, it's silly to take a moral posturing on, on a point of view. You've been asked to explain it, justify it. What's the evidence? What's the logic? You know, 
So one of the things I learned early was this, someone said black. I said, well, hang on, maybe it's white. <laughs> That's where the junk is. So somebody told me in a pub in Houston, Texas, that it was junk. And I thought, oh, I, didn't, oh. I just thought, well, maybe it's not. Mm. You know, so I think being a contrarian, but not destructive one. No. But is very useful to look at it from another point of view. So if it doesn't make sense, question the assumptions behind it and, and, and look for an alternative explanation that might make sense. The assumption that genes only make proteins turned out to be wrong. You know, the pedants will say, oh, some genes make ribosomal RNAs, but they're the infrastructure of making proteins. But the genes are synonymous with proteins turns out to be true, largely true in microorganisms, but not true in us, that most of our genes are actually producing what I call organisational RNAs that control our development. And that's obvious in retrospect. That's a good test, by the way. Retrospective obviousness is a good test of whether you're right or not. So the broader lesson is that um, one should uh, always be uh, aware of the assumptions that are underpinning things, and that if uh, observations uh, are made that don't fit easily, question the assumptions and look for alternative explanations. But I think it's also testimony to both the uh, the conserv uh, conservatism and to some extent boringness of science on the one hand, um, and the other its ability to get there in the end and, and make exciting new, um, uh, have an exciting new perspective, which informs us in, in all sorts of ways. So, and I just don't apply this to molecular biology. I think all of the scientific disciplines suffer from this lurching from paradigm to paradigm problem. You know, they sh I mean, there's a proper story, which I think is made up, but that Lord Kelvin said, that predicted the end of physics in the 1890s. And then along came Rutherford and Einstein and Schrodinger and, Throw all the cats up in the air. Yes. So, uh, you know, so always question, always be curious, challenge. But I think one of the problems I think in current culture is that we've forgotten that challenging ideas and permanent perspective, whether it's as I said, political or anything else, is actually a very good thing to do. But you've got to do it respectfully, but cherish it because when you disagree, you actually learn. Very important. On that note, Professor Maddock, yeah. thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Ian. That was John Maddock, Professor of RNA Biology from the University of New South Wales, talking about the big misunderstanding in molecular biology. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please rate the show on iTunes and Spotify. Tell your friends. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter and Mastodon at Ian Wolf. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including... Tune FM at the University of Armidale in New South Wales, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, 4DDD in Dalby and the Darling Downs in Queensland, 4RPH in Brisbane, Denmark FM in Western Australia, 6GME Golari in Broome, Radio Adelaide in South Australia, Lofty FM in the Adelaide Hills, 2XXFM in Canberra, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and Print Radio in Hobart. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 
in Northeast Victoria. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than 1,300 previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf. You can also support Diffusion by buying from the Diffusion Science Etsy store. I'm Ian Wolf. Join me inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.